0: This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. In this presentation, Dr. Craig answers questions and discusses apologetics at Watermark Church in Dallas-Fort Worth. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Hopefully many of you were at the conference with us all day yesterday. We had a great day here from uh, early in the morning deep into the afternoon. And what we're going to do today is kind of wrap up what we did yesterday, if you aren't familiar with what I speak of. We spent yesterday with some of the brightest minds in the the world, frankly, who uh, can deal with questions that believers are consistently asked with or that those that have an adversarial view towards the Christian faith often present. And so we had a wonderful time yesterday. The man that really made that conference possible for us. the uh, the gentleman that uh, we first had begun some conversations with, and it turned into this great day we had yesterday it was a gentleman by the name of William Lane Craig. Dr. Craig is going to be with us again this morning, and he and I are going to uh, just do a little q and a and we 're also going to give you an opportunity to possibly ask him some questions um, and so behind me you 're going to see me throw up a text number nine five four nine five You put the keyword "watermark" in there, and you can fire a question out now we certainly like to give um you a chance to uh, at least voice your questions we'll assimilate them there's no way we're going to answer um a dozen of them but we'll take a look at them and see if there are a few that pop and that are consistent and then uh after dr craig and i get done with a little bit of a dialogue um we might uh, answer your questions. so again uh, 95495 keyword watermark and um we're going to build three thousand dollars to your phone but the good news is <laughs> $2,900 all we use wisely. The other 10 will go to things that you would be proud of. So, no, no charge of your phone. Just text it there, obviously, and, uh, and we'll see if we can't answer some of your questions. Dr. Craig, why don't you come on up? As he does, let me uh, introduce him to you a little bit. He is currently a professor of research philosophy uh, at a university in California. He has a doctorate in philosophy from a university in Belgium. He has a doctorate in theology Um, from a university in Munich, correct? Mm -hmm. And uh, before that, you uh, spent some time uh, studying philosophy at other places. Dr. Craig is one of the world's leading minds. He's written over 30 books on topics that we're going to be talking about today, including something called the Kalam, Cosmological Argument for the Existence of God. Now that is, interestingly enough, it is an Arabic word, right? right? And it was first introduced by a um, uh, I guess a, a Muslim,
1: right, who brought well, this idea forward? Well, it was highly through. developed by medieval Muslim theologians, but they didn't actually originate it. They got it from early Christian uh, philosophers who were responding to Aristotle. Aristotle believed that matter was eternal and uncreated. And these early Christians, because they believed in God and creation, began to offer arguments to refute Aristotle. And what happened was when Islam swept across North Africa and conquered these Christian lands, Mm -hmm. it absorbed this tradition, and this then became highly developed in medieval Muslim thought as an argument for creation and for the existence of God, because that's a common element that uh, Christianity and Islam share. So what is, just in a quick nutshell, um, what is the Kalam argument? It's just three simple steps. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist, from which it follows three, therefore, the universe has a cause. Mm -hmm. So those are the three steps. If the first two steps are true, then the conclusion follows necessarily. So the only question is, uh, are the truth of those two first premises? Yeah. And so, um, what what Dr. Craig did yesterday, actually, during his talk,
0: is uh, we had a little fun. He, um, I think you called it Eastwooding. Yes. You uh, took the cue from uh, Mr. Clint as he showed up at a recent public, uh, recent convention and uh, had a, a conversation with Mr. Obama who wasn't there. Now um, one of the reasons you did that is a gentleman by the name of Richard Dawkins that's gained some notoriety. Uh, Dr. Dawkins is, um, what, what's his degree in?
1: I, I assume it's zoology or biology, though he's not actually a professor hmm. of biology or zoology. He's a professor of the public relations with, of science and, and, and public uh, society. He's, he's really a professor of relations between science and the public uh, world.
0: And part of what he felt like is the way to uh, further the relations between science and the public world is to show the lunacy, from his point of view, of the God idea. And yes. has really crashed onto the scene as a bit of a rock star oh yeah um over these last uh probably the last decade especially yes um most famously with his book the god delusion right now dr dawkins has uh been in some debates but he has chosen to also not enter into some others um he and you have tried a couple of times to get together and at the last
1: moment uh he has withdrawn or chosen not to be able to make it correct not to accept the invitation last october i was in the uk for a speaking tour And about four British organizations, including the British Humanist Association, attempted to have a debate between Dr. Dawkins and me in Oxford, his hometown. And he was just adamant, resolute in refusing to meet me in debate, even though previously he had boasted I will debate anyone and I will win yes. uh, so bring your arguments and I will show you why you're wrong and he didn't prove to be true to his word
0: yeah I think also uh, he's quite the wag didn't he say that uh, debating him would look good on your resume but not his yes yeah Yeah. right uh, easy to say that until you step into the ring with somebody um, Dr. Craig has also had the opportunity just to uh, engage Christopher Hitchens who wrote the book God is not great what, 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 I want you all to understand if you're not um, familiar with the opportunities that you have to expose yourself to, I guess, the best thinkers who are critical of the Christian idea, uh, of the God idea, the theistic idea. Um, Dr. Craig and others have had opportunities to dialogue with them and to um, help them respond to some of the problems with their positing and with their premises. And and so you can go to reasonablefaith.org and almost all those debates are available for them to just download oh, yes, and watch. Oh, yeah.
1: yes, We make everything on the website free of charge because mm-hmm. we want to disseminate this material as widely as possible. One thing i want the folks here to understand mm-hmm. this morning is that we're living at a time of history mm-hmm. in which there is a, a literal intellectual renaissance of Christianity going on. Yep. These popular movements like the New Atheism in pop culture are really just a kind of little backwater compared to the wider tide where in philosophy in new testament studies and in science uh, these disciplines are more open to the existence of god and the truth of biblical christianity than at any time in recent memory so this is a very exciting time to be alive because we are experiencing an intellectual christian renaissance right now in the Anglo-American world.
0: And we are. And uh, what's interesting is along with that, in America, uh, new stats just recently came out that four uh, uh, Americans, one in every four, so 25% of every American under 30 specifically, now describe themselves as either atheist, agnostic, or as nunners, nothing in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, Five out of six young, People, I guess also described by under 30 are dropping out of church who have been in there. It's a historic rate of departure. Um, and as you, we've already acknowledged, books by the guys like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and uh, Hitchens have just gone mainstream. Yeah. So, so so, there is this renaissance. Um, th- there is this great new source of information that's out there for everybody. But what do you attribute to the rise in skepticism Yeah. and frankly just um, a rejection, an abandonment, a wondering, a seeking of of this culture and the younger culture specifically. What goes
1: on in the intellectual realm, the ivory tower in the academic realm, takes a generation or two to filter down to popular culture. And I think what we're seeing in the secularization of pop culture is the residue of previous generations of atheism and agnosticism among academics. It's, it's the result of the kind of philosophy that dominated in the 1930s and 40s in the United States where the prevailing attitude was if you can't verify something with your five senses then it's meaningless. It's just pure emotion and sentiment. And the attitude that people like Dawkins, Hitchens, Harris and others expressed is this old line verificationism from the thirties and forties, which has been completely been overtaken mm-hmm. among academic philosophers, and it's going to take, I think, another generation for the true effect of this to be felt in pop culture. But I would say, Todd, where we already are seeing this filter-down effect is in the tremendous surge of interest among lay people yeah. in Christian apologetics. Conferences like we had here yesterday are not being imposed from the top down. This is coming from the grassroots up. People are demanding training in the defense of the faith, and they're interested in engaging science, philosophy, and history with regard to their faith. And so this, I think, is a kind—it's the fruit of the Renaissance in popular culture new testament studies and science it's been going on among the intelligentsia over the last 50 years
0: and part of the reason that it's coming from the bottom up is because for so long i think the church has suppressed the idea that it's appropriate polite righteous uh, faithful to ask questions yes uh, you know one of the things i love to tell people i mentioned yesterday in the time that i had with everybody is that if something is true no amount of scrutiny can affect it yeah. And God is not intimidated by or bothered by our questions. What he doesn't like is questions of accusation where you, you walk in and you go, what are you doing? Why do you think the way that you think? I, I can't believe you run the universe this way,
1: and you, you walk away justified because you feel a certain way without stopping to let him answer. Yeah, yeah. And, so, and, and when you look at the arguments or the objections of many of these popular level atheists, they are just that. It's angry, ranting, accusatory. They're not thoughtful exploratory questions that are really looking for an answer. I think there's a lot of hurt uh, and a lot of anger and emotional baggage that comes out in many of these. And this is
0: a great chance for me just to insert this right here. There is, and, and, and we need to acknowledge that hurt and that pain, that anger, uh, oftentimes justifiable hurt sure. and anger because of abuses yes. that have come from people that have taken the name of Christ. Let me, let me just offer you this, one of the things that I say often to people in the midst of that kind of pain when you grew up in a home, like Shelly did in your Watermark News today, where there wasn't a father present, and so other men showed up who showed her affection that they then turned out to be predators consistently in her life and have gone through a spiral of brokenness and looking. When when you have abuse that happens to you or when you suffer at the hands of others, to continue then in a cycle of self-destruction and rebellion against truth itself is not bringing healing and it's not hurting God. You're just continuing the abuse now, not at the hands from others, but at your own hand. And I wanna tell you, there is a solution to that. And I I say this because it's totally relevant to what's in your Watermark News. We always share stories in there about life change. And so some go the direction of these gentlemen that we've talked about and others go where Shelly does, where she finds healing. And she sees that what men intended for evil, God can in fact use for good. And, and the full cycle of vengeance and justice towards all that Shelley and others like her have experienced isn't complete yet. And, and God would offer um, that we would pray for those that do that harm to us, but also that we as believers would acknowledge that harm has been done to people yes. uh, significantly. And so let me ask you this. Let's just say somebody showed up and, 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 and um, said, I have been hurt, Dr. Craig. I've been hurt uh, in ways that I don't even have the courage to share publicly. And if there is a God that exists, and he would allow this to happen to me, if he is sovereign, Mm -hmm. then, then whether he did it or not, he's culpable, because he could have stopped it.
1: Right. And he chose not to. Right. Why should I give that God a chance? Oh, well now, if you're asking the why question, because it's the truth. And here, one would share with such a person the good arguments and the evidence for the existence of God and the truth of Christianity. and the claims of Jesus of Nazareth, his resurrection from the dead, you don't make a decision about the truth based upon your emotional scars. Uh, Emotions can lead us astray. You've got to look at the arguments, the evidence, and the truth. So the reason you should believe it is because it's the truth. Now, why would God allow these horrible things to happen in a person's life? Here I think the answer is that God is sovereign and he has morally justifying reasons for allowing the evils in the world that are by no means always apparent to us but if we're convinced that there is such a being uh, as the bible describes then when these horrible things happen to us they are only within the wider providential plan of a god who ultimately has justifying reasons for permitting these sorts of things to happen
0: let's do this because one of the things that we want to do i mean it's, it's our job to equip the saints i mean dr craig has Um, very generously uh, spent his life putting together materials to equip the saints, and and as he shared, everything at the reasonablefaith.org website, I keep saying that hoping that you might pay attention to it, um, uh, is available there for free. What I wanna do is show you another resource. Frank Turek uh, was one of our speakers yesterday, and Frank, what was that, about a minute and a half? That little uh, video clip that he had that answers that problem of evil, we're gonna load that. Blake, would you just let me know when we've got that loaded? And we'll show that to you this morning as an example of the kind of stuff that's out there for you that answers this kind of question. Dr. Craig, so many folks, when they, when they come across questions like this, they'll they go, oh, I wish, you know, Robbie Zacharias was here. He was a classmate of yours, by the way. Yes. You two uh, went to Trinity together. We did. Did you kick his tail, like, in all the stuff? Was he way below the curve Well, on you? no,
1: it was really funny. He and I were both in our very first class in seminary together under John Warwick Montgomery, and Montgomery had as the class assignment to write a paper, and he would pick the best paper of the class to be published. Well, as it turned out, the best paper was neither by Ravi nor by me. It was by a fellow named Tim Ertle, who is now a philosopher at Bethel College in South Bend, Indiana, and this wow. is one of Tim's proudest boasts is that he beat Ravi and Bill Craig in this class. <laughs> yes, I would, I would think
0: so. <laughs> That's, that's, that's tremendous. So um, what, what, uh, what, when you when you come across somebody who says, I wish Robbie was here, I wish Bill was here, um, and, and they just consistently find themselves unable to answer a question, a person who's just starting down this arena, when they don't just uh-huh. share what we believe, but then are quickly silenced by the intimidations of, well, that's crazy. What, what would yeah. be your admonition? If they're out there today and right. they're starting this journey as a person who is, going to grow as an apologician, All right. Yes.
1: define apologetics and tell them what you would recommend to them, one, two, and three, to begin to equip themselves. All right, self. apologetics is simply the defense of the faith. That is to say, why we believe that the Christian faith is true. And if a person is just starting off, I think the very first thing is to be honest about admitting when you don't know. Don't try to give the unbeliever a snow job, yeah. because he'll see through it. Instead, say, that's a really good question i don't know but i'll go find out and i'll get back with you and then go and begin to talk to someone or get some resources so that you can get back to that person again and if you're beginning to just study i'd recommend some books like lee strobel's um case for christ or case for the creator or paul little's books know why you believe and know what you believe these are entry-level simple books but they still are very substantive they've got good material in them and that's a good place to start once you've done that you can move up to something like on guard or reasonable faith and uh, keep going as far as you want but i think that most 95 percent of the questions you hear from unbelievers are the same and once you get down some good answers to those i think you'll find yourself very well equipped to Talk to almost everybody.
0: Really, it does fall into you know eight major categories. I mean, I've looked at this myself and spent some time doing some of this, and um, it, it's just if you can learn to be conversant, give a, a, a winsome thirty-second answer, prepare yourself for a three-minute conversation, or if you have the opportunity to go thirty minutes long in any one of these, there's really only you know five, six, seven, eight, nine different areas that yeah, we really at most, at most. yeah. How about this what what do you think is the best argument against our conviction that there's a god who loves us who has manifested himself in the person of jesus christ and redeemed us from our sin
1: well i don't think there is any sound argument obviously but i suppose the best one i think would maybe be an argument based on the hiddenness of god that is to say If God exists, he could make his existence a lot more evident to us. It'd be easy for him to do things that would make it obvious that he's there. But God has chosen to remain hidden in large measure. Um, His existence is veiled to those who do not seek him. And that's troublesome. We might think, well, that hiddenness of God is best explained by his not existing. He's hidden because there is no such being as God. And so I think that's a, a significant challenge that the unbeliever can mount.
0: Okay, and so I'm going to say to you, and this it, it really almost always drifts back to that problem of evil.
1: That, that, it's related to the yeah. problem of evil, Good, yes. The hiddenness of God springs out of the fact that there is this suffering and rottenness in the world. God doesn't intervene to stop it, and in that sense, he, he does seem hidden. Why, why don't we see him yeah, intervening? Yeah, why, why wouldn't he stop that, this abuse of this little girl, the slaughter
0: right. of these... Innocence, as the world would define them, Um, and so when people would say, "If God is there and He is good and He is sovereign and He is kind and He doesn't stop that, I won't give Him another moment to speak into my life," so that that, He's hidden from me in that way. Now, there are those good answers for that, and and we just we we mentioned this resource earlier. We're going to show it right now. Here here is just a simple, okay, And, and again, this is a the best thing you can do is empathize and start the dialogue and start to begin that relationship where you can model that God is there, he does care, and he's present in you as his people. That won't erase what's happened. But watch this, this is something that's put, put together by Frank. Frank's ministry is, um, uh, remind me, it's just eluding me right now.
1: Name, uh, um, I'm gonna say stand of reason. That's Greg, no, who was here yesterday. I, I know his book is I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, but. Cross-examined.
0: Yeah, we go, thank you, cross-examined. Okay. cross-examined. So you can go to crossexamined.org, okay? I'm giving you these resources. There's no reason not to equip yourself. But go to crossexamine.org, and, um, and, and you can watch this video. You can have it ready to share with others. But here's a, here's a minute, minute and a half, on the problem of evil.
2: Is God good? If he is, why is there suffering and evil? Let's assume for the moment that God is all-powerful, This means that God can do anything that is logically possible. So he can create galaxies and subatomic particles and rainforests and you. But God cannot do what is logically impossible. He cannot make a square circle or a one ended stick. So can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? No. So what if when God created human beings, he wanted them to be free? freedom's a good thing but if humans are to be free they cannot be forced to obey god because freedom without choice is like a square circle it's a logical contradiction no choice no freedom god didn't want robots he wanted real people the first humans endowed with the awesome power of free choice abused their freedom the tragic consequences of their bad choice and our bad choices ripple across the world. God is responsible for the fact of freedom, but humans are responsible for their acts of freedom. But let's remember, we don't suffer alone. God will put an end to suffering and evil, and God became a man to suffer with us. God is good, and he wants real people like you to know him but the free choice
0: is yours. It's tremendous. And resource like that, you saw there, unfortunately, we live, uh, thank you, neither of us are responsible for that, so you can, you can thank us if you'd like to. <laughs> uh, uh, the, the little soundbite, we live in a soundbite world, and so, um, you know, that, that idea of God being, is responsible for the fact of freedom, and people are responsible for the, Acts of That was very nice. Yes. And so those are the kind of responses. Then you can go on. And so let me just give you a, a quick answer to this. Well, that's great. Why doesn't God stop those that are acting in their freedom in a way that is bringing so much pain to others? And good news is, is that God has already answered that question. And the reason is, is so that some that were there yesterday at our conference, uh, some that are here this morning, some that will be loved by you potentially this week, if God gives us another day might themselves too come to repentance and find the grace and mercy provided by Jesus Christ to deal with their sins, because God does not take any delight in the death of the wicked. He wishes that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And so he tells you the reason that he delays is because he'd like a few more to get on that ark of rest that's provided through Jesus Christ before that ultimate flood of judgment comes. Now, meanwhile, while we're here suffering immensely, Um, in the flood of acts of godlessness all around us, it may make us say, well, God, if you love me, you wouldn't stop this. But that feeling is one that
1: we do have to meet with faith. Dr. Craig, talk about faith for a second. Well, no, I wanna, I don't think we just have to meet that with faith. You see, what the atheist has to say, he's got to be able to prove that it is impossible or improbable for God to have a morally sufficient reason for permitting these facts of suffering. And that's a burden of proof, which is so heavy that no atheist has ever been able to sustain it.
0: Explain that, because the question I was gonna ask you is let's talk about this subject of faith, which is Uh where I was going, so you you, you, you jumped right where I was headed. When they say that, okay, explain explain that idea that you just entered into. Well,
1: take someone's little daughter dying of leukemia or getting run over by an automobile. We don't see why that happened, and we wondered why wouldn't a sovereign God intervene to stop it. And what the atheist has to say is that it's either impossible or it's highly improbable that god could have a morally justifying reason for allowing that to occur but there's no way given our finitude our limits in space and time for being able to make that kind of a claim with any justification god's morally sufficient reason for allowing your daughter's death might not emerge until 300 years from now maybe in another country Every event that occurs sends a ripple effect through history so that the consequences of any event are simply incalculable and incomprehensible for finite local persons. So the atheist is making a claim here which is just completely unsustainable. There's no way for him to show that it's improbable or impossible that God has a morally sufficient reason for allowing this evil to occur. And therefore, his argument really has no intellectual credibility. It's a purely emotional. Yes, it
0: is. And a very compelling. This is the thing. It's a compelling one, isn't it? Emotionally compelling, yes. but well, not intellectually compelling. Correct. And, when, and so when somebody says in that moment in immense pain, I don't care what good he can bring out of this. Yes. I reject him. Yes. And we hear that a lot. And, sure. and, and C.S. Lewis drifted towards saying that in his grief observed. Mm-hmm. And, and God, when God hears us say those kind of things, okay, um, he, he, his response is one of understanding. The Scripture says, yes. he too has been tempted in every way, even as we were. Yes. Okay? And so God doesn't
1: shut us off when we say that. No, no, no. I, I think that's absolutely right. Look at the Psalms, Yes. how the psalmist expresses anger toward God and, God, where are you? Why are you allowing this? Why why am I going through this? I think the lesson of the Psalms is, come to God with your hurt and your pain and your anger and don't try to stifle it and suppress it. Let it out and 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 he'll he'll listen to you.
0: He'll listen and if you'll let him, if you'll listen to him, as Christopher Hitchens acknowledged, he gives the only consistent, um, logically constructed, plausible answer that, frankly, even Hitchens
1: acknowledged, you know what? Christianity alone solves this problem. Yeah, I I remember Bertrand Russell, the great atheist philosopher, once said that, no one can sit at the bedside of a dying child and believe in God. But when Jan and I were in Paris, we met a young minister who was trained and now worked in counseling dying children. And I thought to myself, counseling dying children? What would Russell have said to those children? Yeah. What could he say? Too bad? Yeah. Tough luck? That's all the naturalist has got to say. It's, as you say, it's theism, it's belief in God that provides a hope and, and a reason for the suffering that it, it's redeemed. Whereas in atheism, we're locked in a world that is filled with gratuitous and unredeemed suffering and there is no hope of escape. What is the moral argument for the existence of God? Mm -hmm. The moral argument for God is also very simple. Three steps. Number one, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. That is to say, if there is no God to be the anchor for moral values and duties, then everything becomes relative. Moral values and duties are just the spin-offs of biological and social evolution. So, if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Premise two, objective moral values and duties do exist. In moral experience, we find that there are certain moral values and duties that impose themselves upon us. For example, that torturing a little child for fun and sexually abusing her is morally wrong, objectively. And from those two premises, it follows three, therefore God exists. Uh, and I find this to be, I think, the most powerful argument that I share on college campuses because students agree implicitly with both premises. Uh, they've just never seen the logical implication of putting two and two together, that this implies God's existence.
0: And, and, and I heard Hitchens argue the same thing. Hitchens said, just because I don't believe in God doesn't mean I've got to be um, a, a molester or that I don't think molesting is wrong. Uh-huh.
1: Your response to that? Well, it's just a complete misunderstanding of the argument. The argument is not that belief in God is necessary for objective moral values to exist. The argument is that God is necessary for there to be objective moral values and duties. There needs to be an objective anchor point whether anybody believes in God or not. So the claim is not that atheists don't live moral lives or that if you don't believe in God you can't live a moral life. I wouldn't ever make such a silly claim as that. The claim is rather if there isn't a God to serve as an objective plumb line for moral values, then everything becomes relative regardless of what you think.
0: have uh, Haven't some argued that no, the Darwinist idea is also uh, a provision that would cause us to choose morality? Uh, choose some standard because if we don't then we're going to conti- uh, uh, no longer continue to exist yes. as a species and right. so for, for
1: darwinistic reasons we've chosen morality I, I use those darwinian arguments in support of premise one that if there is no god then moral values and duties are exactly what the darwinist says they're just the spin-offs of evolutionary development and sociological development they are behavior patterns ingrained into the human species that are conducive to survival in the struggle for survival. If we have these illusory moral beliefs that give us cooperation and altruism amongst one another, our species is more apt to survive in the struggle for survival. So these aren't really objective moral values. These are just the the byproduct of uh, the struggle for survival. And to that, you say? Well, to that, I say, that's right. That is premise one, that if if there is no God, then the Darwinist is absolutely right. But I think there are objective moral values and duties. Uh, And again, I think that's what we apprehend in moral experience. And that implies, therefore, that God does, in fact, exist.
0: So what you're saying is that the reason that those exist is because of the God idea, not because of the need to sustain the race.
1: Right, the question isn't the origin of our beliefs about morality. I could be quite prepared to say, yes, our beliefs are largely shaped by our upbringing, our parents, even by evolution, but that's not the issue. The issue is not the origin of our beliefs. The question is the grounding. What is the objective grounding of moral values and duties? Here many atheists and theists alike agree that if there is no God to serve as such an anchor point, then moral values are just relative. And if you rewound the film of human evolution back to the beginning and shot it over again, very different creatures might well have evolved with a very different set of moral values than those that have. And who would we be to say, Our values are right and theirs are wrong. There there is no basis.
0: And therein is the rub because there might be some people who say me sexually abusing this child and mutilating this child does not in any way keep my species from evolving. I'm just gonna select that child out abuse it for my own pleasure and i will make sure my species survives over here and there would be no at that point objective opportunity to say that that is wrong not it on atheism you're, you're right i mean yeah.
1: rape or actions that look like rape yes. go on all the time in the animal kingdom if a male animal is prepared to forcibly copulate with a female he has a better chance of uh, siring progeny so the darwinist naturalist could say that his sexual misconduct is actually conducive to survival of the species and propagating his genetic uh, gene pool. And that's exactly what you see in dictatorial countries. When you see the king is law,
0: you'll see uh, a lot of times those that are in positions of power using their power to uh, find their own pleasure and sustained prominence by causing others to suffer. And it really isn't the survival of species, it's the survival of themselves yeah. in their deified state. All right, let's go to some of these questions, can I? Sure. Right, Where's does, where does one get uh, a, a snappy pair of red suspenders like that?
1: <laughs> okay, uh, I'll tell you. There's an online site <laughs> called Hold'em Up. Uh, they're getting a free commercial. These are the best suspenders I've ever seen. Hold'em up. They've got little clasps on them. They've got little teeth. And they will not come loose. They are great and they've got beautiful patterns. So I'd encourage you to to get some. Right.
0: (laughs) Why don't you all ever ask questions about my clothes? That's what I want. TJ Maxx, that's the answer TJ Maxx. That's where you get it Tuesday morning. All right. Um, Answer this Do do you often see, um, do you often see, in your responding,
1: uh, or or, let me say it this way, what is the role of apologetics? What's the spirit's Uh, role? Okay, I I think there are three reasons that every Christian in Western society needs to be trained in apologetics. And I'll be brief here, but number one is uh, shaping our culture. If Christians can be equipped to answer the tough questions of their unbelieving friends and give good reasons for why we believe, The public perception of Christianity will change. No longer will Christians be seen as emotional Bible pounders and buffoons, but they'll be seen as intelligent, thoughtful people. So if we want to shape American culture in such a way that the gospel can be heard as a legitimate option for thinking people, we need to be equipped ourselves. Secondly, it is very valuable for your own personal development. Emotions will only carry you so far. In the christian life all of us go through periods of spiritual dryness and doubt and in those kinds of times it's good to have the arguments and the evidence that will help you to persevere through those times and i i would warn christian parents here this morning if we do not become engaged in this way we're in real danger of losing our youth see also five or six kids already
0: being lost because i think parents don't tell their kids the why, the substance yes. behind our faith.
1: Don't leave it up to the youth pastor or, or the church. Especially parents. here, my goodness. <laughs> Have you met our youth pastor? That brown guy oh, or brown guy? Yeah, yeah, don't. <laughs> Good night. Yeah, parents need to be engaged themselves and ready to answer their children's questions simply at first from a young age and then with increasing depth as they grow older. In, in high school and college, Christian students are assaulted intellectually, with every kind of non-Christian philosophy conjoined with an overwhelming relativism. And and if we don't equip them, we're going to lose our next generation of youth. Third point, very quickly, it's very helpful in evangelizing non-believers. We see people constantly coming to Christ through reasonable faith because, for the first time, they've heard good reasons to become a Christian. And it's just thrilling to see people coming back to Christ after apparent apostasy, or coming to Christ the first time because they've heard a gospel presentation combined with good reasons. At
0: the same time, you don't ever feel like, hey, I've got to convince you and that, that my argument will be the ultimate agent. We know it's the Spirit of God that yes. does the work, but, but that, some people say
1: that as an excuse for why they don't need to prepare. Yeah, and that's wrong because they fail to recognize that the Holy Spirit uses yes. means. He doesn't just zap people he can use preaching yes. he can use argumentation okay. he can use evidence so the spirit of god uses means to draw people to himself that's exactly right god wants us to love him with all
0: of our heart soul mind and strength they take that's the right. meatloaf approach two out of oh. three ain't bad and and that, that that's not going to work you've got to love them all yeah. all right
1: yeah yeah paul the apostle reference. said Pay i attention. have become all things to all men that I might by all means win some and we must not neglect that segment of our population who are our teachers our doctors our lawyers our engineers the church has got to be reaching out to these folks too
0: what was so great about the questions that are coming in we've answered so many of the questions that are coming in already just in a little conversation in a few minutes which is again evidence that the primary questions that people have there's not that many of them. I mean, Mm. wear this tape out on Watermark Media. Uh, We'll give it to Dr. Craig. If you want to go to Reasonable Faith, it'll be on his side too. Wear it out and just go listen to these things and and be prepared. We are to be ready to give a defense when anyone asks us to give an account. We trust that God's going to do the work, but as as he said, Paul did. I think the reason
1: most of us don't do this is because we're I hate to say it, lazy. I agree. I think it's intellectual laziness, and and we really need to get off our behinds and study to show ourselves approved, as the Scripture says. As you said, this isn't an option. 1 Peter 3.15 is a scriptural command to the disciple of Christ to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in him. Love
0: it. Hey, one of the areas that you have gone long on is the resurrection. Yes. That is an area of specific passion. And, and frankly, our faith, specifically the Christian faith, yes. not, not the deistic or theistic right. faith, um, but, but rises and falls with the
1: resurrection of That's Jesus. That's right. Take your best shot. Well, here's what folks might not realize about this. And this stunned me as a result of my studies at the University of Munich. The basic facts that undergird The historicity of Jesus' resurrection are recognized today by the mainstream of New Testament scholarship about the historical Jesus. I'm not talking about conservative scholars or evangelical scholars. Mm -hmm. I mean the broad mainstream of university scholarship about the historical Jesus, and those facts are four in number. First, that after his crucifixion, Jesus was interred in a tomb by a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin who was named Joseph of Arimathea. We actually have the man's name who buried Jesus. Secondly, that tomb was then discovered empty on Sunday morning by a group of Jesus' women followers. Thirdly, thereafter, various individuals and groups of people under a variety of circumstances in different locales experienced appearances of Jesus alive after his death. And number four, the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that God had raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead despite every predisposition to the contrary. Those four facts are not just Christian beliefs or the beliefs of conservative. These are recognized by the majority of New Testament scholars today, including Jewish New Testament scholars. So, really, the only question is how do you best explain these four facts? And I'm prepared to argue that the best explanation is the one that the original disciples gave, namely, God raised him from the dead.
0: Okay, so one of the things that happens is you do that, and this is one of the questions that pops up to eventually when you talk about the reliability of the text, because you just said, hey, New Testament scholars and even Old Testament Jewish scholars that look at the New Testament right. agree with these things. So eventually you're going to get back to the issue of the Bible. Is it a a reliable and trustworthy document?
1: Talk about the Scripture. This is, I think, a misimpression, Todd, that a lot of people have. When these historical scholars approach the New Testament documents, they do not do so as inspired, holy books that are inerrant because they're the Word of God. They approach them like they would approach the works of Herodotus, or Thucydides, or other ancient historians, completely secular. And they are quite prepared to say that the Scriptures or the, the New Testament documents are full of errors, contradictions, they don't think it's necessarily reliable in all that affirms. And even with that degree of skepticism and objectivity and neutrality, these four facts mm. still emerge as historical nuggets which are recognized by the majority of New Testament scholars today, or historians. So it actually doesn't presuppose the general reliability of the New Testament. It just says, let's look at these as ordinary historical documents. Try to sift the wheat from the chaff. What are the historical kernels that we can pull out of this? And among that wheat, among that chaff, this historical core, emerges these four remarkable facts about Jesus of Nazareth. And the question is then, what is the secular historian going to do with this? Yeah. And the, the answer for the secular historian is typically, I don't know. I, I, I have a, a hole here in history which I cannot plug as a secular historian. And so they're simply left with agnosticism.
0: Uh, agree or disagree with this statement that most people reject Christianity not on the basis of an
1: intellectual issue, but more an issue of the will. I'll agree. Yeah. I think that for most people who reject the evidence for Christianity, they are really very, very unfamiliar with it. They, they have never looked into it in any depth. I find this is particularly true of university professors. They are skilled and intelligent in their narrow area of specialization, such as quantum chemistry, Russian literature, uh, mathematics or something. Poor personal grooming, (laughs) those kind of things. (laughs) But they've they've never really investigated the evidence for Christianity. So most people who reject the Christian faith, uh, I think, do so on the basis of personal volitional emotional yeah. sorts of reasons
0: you know uh let me just wrap up our, our our time this morning with this and that that um as you go and as you speak to people one of the things don't don't start with the why you always want to start with the what you know um when, when people sit there and they say well i'm not how do you know the bible's inspired uh, one of the things that i love to do uh, some people have called it the judo technique is i just say wait a minute Without a doubt, the Bible is the most renowned book in all of human history. It's been the most read, the most translated, the most published. Um, and, and, and I want to ask you, not do you believe it's true, but do you know what the central message of the Scripture is? Good point. And, and, and it's, you're coming at this and rejecting it because of an intellectual um, problem. But it, it, if you don't even know what the central message is, that's not very intellectual to reject what the message is before you even understand it. So I'm not asking you to believe the Bible is true and inspired by God, I'm asking you, what is the central message of the scripture?
1: And most of the time they won't give it to you, they don't know it. Wow, and that's an opportunity to then to share the gospel.
0: And and so you want to lead that, and I I wanna remind you with one other thing, okay? Or or, or two things, Uh, and I'll start with the, the second one first, which is, there are answers. Dr. Craig's already told you what to do. When when you're not ready to answer that question, that is a wonderful question. Do you mind, I'm gonna do some work and I'll get back with you. And I'd love to talk about that. Go to reasonablefaith.org. Go to these other resources that are on there, crossexamine.org or uh, standtoreason.org. There are tremendous stuff that is out there. Get equipped. We have an apologetics team here that will disciple you and help you answer those questions. But the first thing that we gotta do is make sure that we ourselves, our individuals, uh, Dr. Craig mentioned the fourth thing in those four observations about the resurrection. The fourth one was that the lives of the disciples yeah. were radically transformed. Mm. This is exactly what follows 1 Peter 3.15, a verse we always quote, mm. when it says, be ready, give an offense, do it with gentleness and reverence, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. In other words, if your life is not transformed by this message that you say is the power of God to transform, mm. that violates almost everything you're gonna say as an intellectual argument. And, and I, I, there's a quote that I was confronted with a while back that continues to spur me on, and it says this, because I, I don't have the brain that Dr. Craig has. That's, that's evident to everybody who was here this morning.
1: But here's what I can tell you. Uh, we're, no, that's not true, I, you've got the same brains, it's just that we are specializing in different areas. Yeah. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Would you eulogize me at my funeral? If you want. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, you think you're going to
0: go first. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but here's the quote, okay, and that is, kindness, kindness, Frederick Faber said, has converted more sinners than zeal eloquence or learning. This is why it says in Proverbs, do not let kindness or truth leave you. Mm -hmm. Bind them uh, around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, for then you will find favor and good repute before God and man. It is not either or. You've got to be kind and loving. The the final apologetic Francis Schaeffer said is love. Jesus said, by this all men you'll know my disciples. But then the Scriptures tell you, you be ready to tell them about the faith, the evidence that goes with the faith that you have. Let's thank Dr. Craig for being here this morning. Oh, God bless good to be with
1: you. I've been grateful. Thank you. For more information
0: and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org.